Okay, <clears throat> let's pray. Father, we turn our eyes and our heart to you right now because we want your blessing as we seek to understand what Jesus Christ accomplished when he died on Calvary's cross so many years ago. So Lord, be with us. Open up our heart and our understanding that we can respond rightly and worship the living Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing our series on the doctrines of grace this morning. We have looked at the doctrine of total inability, and we've looked at the doctrine of unconditional election. The third doctrine in the series is the doctrine of particular atonement. Now, some people refer to this as limited atonement. There is a popular acrostic that goes by T-U-L-I-P. And the phrase that goes with each one of those letters is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. But I'm changing those words up a little bit to suit what I, the, the, the phrases I like. So I like total inability, unconditional election, and this one I'm going to call particular atonement. Now this is the most difficult of all of the five doctrines that we're going to be discussing. It's the most difficult to comprehend, and it's also the most difficult to accept. When we come to the doctrine of total inability, the question is, what is the spiritual condition of the unregenerate person? Okay, the person who's lost. What's his spiritual condition? The answer we found from Scripture is that he's dead in his trespasses and sins. The second question, for unconditional election, the question is, why is one person converted and another is not converted who both hear the same gospel message? Why? Why is that? The answer, according to Scripture, is God's sovereign choice of certain people to eternal life. Now, this third doctrine, the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption, whatever phrase you want to use, here's the question. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? And you say, man, that's an easy one. That's a no-brainer. Everybody knows the answer to that question. Christ died for everybody. Everybody who's ever lived, everybody who ever will live, and he did exactly the same thing for every person that has ever been born into this world. Well, that question is not as easy to answer as you might originally think, because there is more to it than just a snap, easy answer. There's two schools of thought when it comes to this question. One school of thought says that Christ died for everybody, just like we said. That's a a popular evangelical position today. There's another school of thought that says that Christ died only for the elect and only for the sins of the elect. And then there's another position, sort of a mediating position between those two, and that's the position that I personally hold. Um, I, I believe that Christ died sufficiently for all people, but efficiently for the elect alone. And that may not make sense right now, but I hope over time during this sermon, you'll begin to understand what I mean by that. I started out believing the first school of thought, the first view. I started out believing that Christ died equally for every person who's ever lived. So for the first 12 years of my Christian life, that was my understanding of the cross. In 1991, I went to the other side and I embraced this new position that Christ died for the elect alone. And then about seven years later, I, 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 I came to understand that my position over here was a little bit too extreme. I had, the pendulum had swung too far and I was not seeing everything that the Bible says about the cross. And so I came back to this position, which is sort of a modified reformed position on the extent of the atonement. My, my understanding now is that neither this position nor that position fully embraces all of the scripture that we have about what Jesus accomplished at the cross. If we want to bring all of the biblical data together, it's not this or that, it's this. So let's take a look. Let's, let's see if we can understand exactly what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. I, I believe there is a sense in which Christ died for every person in the world. 
And I also believe there's another sense in which he died especially for his chosen people. That both things are taking place. I do not believe that Christ died and accomplished exactly the same thing for every person who's ever lived. I do not believe that that is what we find in Scripture. I believe there is a universal aspect to the death of Christ, and there's a particular aspect to the death of Christ. And that should not be hard for us to um, to imagine, because think about the love of God. There is a universal love of God, where God loves all of his creatures. Every person that he's ever made, he, he loves them with a, a general love, a benevolent love, a love of pity and compassion. But then there's also a different kind of love, a particular kind of the love of God that goes out to his chosen people. And this is not just a love of benevolence or compassion. It's a covenant love. It's a strong, powerful, eternal love that brings salvation to pass in someone's life. So you've got two different kinds of the love of God in Scripture. You've also got a universal and a particular call of God in the Bible. Whenever the gospel is preached, there's a universal call to everybody who hears it to come to Jesus Christ. But there's also a particular effectual call that goes out to the elect. It's a call that actually grabs their attention, turns them around, and brings them to Jesus Christ. It's not just a wooing. It's not just a general invitation, it's a powerful bringing of a person into the possession of Christ, into the possession of salvation. So you've got a universal call, and you've got this particular aspect of the call of God. So why would we think it would be any different when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ? There is a universal aspect to what Christ accomplished, but there's also a particular aspect of what Jesus Christ accomplished. The atonement is multifaceted. It's not so simple and clear-cut and easy as you might originally expect. There's many different facets. It's like a gem that you can look at from different perspectives and see its brilliance and its glory. So this morning, what I'd like to do with you is, first of all, let's look at the sufficiency of the atonement. Then let's look at the design of the atonement. And then let's look at the mechanics of the atonement. Okay? So first of all, the sufficiency. By sufficiency, we mean the atonement is able, it has enough in it to do whatever God wants it to do. So, here's the formula that most Christians have been able to embrace from all schools of thought. Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect alone. Now, is that true? Is Jesus Christ's death sufficient for every person? Let's look at some scripture. The Bible teaches us that Christ died for the world, Christ died for all men, and Christ died for even those that perish. Okay, first of all, and Ola's going to put these up on the screen because it would take us way too long for all to turn in our Bibles, but he'll put it up for us. First of all, Christ died for the world. In John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? The world. Now, behold, the Lamb of God. To any Jew in the first century, Lamb of God would have given them the idea of a sacrificial victim who is killed in order to atone for sin, just like the Passover Lamb on the Passover day, right? John the Baptist was pointing to Christ and says, there is the Lamb of God. He's going to give up his life. He will be slain and sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. Now, John 3.16, of course, a verse that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, Some scholars say that the word world simply means God's elect scattered throughout the world. They say it does not refer to every member of the human race. They say that when when the Bible uses the term world, it's simply trying to say it's Gentiles as well as Jews. 
that salvation is not restricted just to the Jewish nation. It goes out to all peoples, tribes, and nations, not necessarily to every person, but all of the elect within the entire world. I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, I understand that reasoning, but let's, let's try to go to the Bible and just accept the plain natural interpretation. We kind of have to read that into these texts, I think, to get that out of it. We have to come with a certain grid or a filter over our mind so that we kind of look at these texts in a certain way in order to come out with that understanding. But if we just come to the Bible with no predisposition and no bias and just read it for what it says, it seems to me he's saying God so loved the world, the entire world, all the inhabitants of the world, that he gave his only begotten son that anybody in that world who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. If what he meant was, for God so loved the elect, that he gave his only begotten son, that the elect would not perish, but have eternal life, he could have said that. But he doesn't say that. He puts it in these general terms. And so, when I look at John one twenty nine and John 3.16, I see that there is a sufficiency in the atonement for the world, and all members of the world. And that's not the only one. Let's go over to 1 John 2, 2. Here John says that Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Okay, now let's think about this. Some scholars say that what he's saying is that Christ himself is the propitiation for Jewish believers' sins, and not only for Jewish believers' sins, but also for Gentile believers' sins. And they restrict the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ only to the elect. But again, it seems to me you have to read that into this text. Is that the natural, plain interpretation that anybody going to the Bible would get if they didn't have this previous filter in their mind? I don't think so. Also, I didn't ask Oleg to put this one up, but let me just read to you how John uses that phrase, whole world. Because whenever you try to interpret the Bible, look at that author, and how do they, how do they use certain phrases? Now here he says, Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. But if you go over to 1 John 5.19, he tells us something about the whole world. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, think about that. What segment of humanity lies in the power of the devil right now? The lost. Are Christians, do we, do Christians lie under the power of the evil one? No. Absolutely not. We have been released from the snare of the devil, according to 2 Timothy 2, 26, I think it is. We have been released from the snare of the devil. We're no longer slaves to sin. The devil no longer can hold us and bind us down like he once did. So, when it says here that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, he interprets the words whole world to mean the lost world. If you were to take a Greek-English lexicon and look up the word world, you would not find one of the definitions as being the elect. It, they just It's just not there. But they will give a definition like the inhabitants of the whole world or all of the ungodly in the entire world. Those are definitions that come out of Scripture. So if we're going to be honest with the Bible, I have to say, okay, there is something in the death of Jesus Christ for everybody. There's something there. It's sufficient for all people because he died for the world. Secondly, Jesus Christ died for all men, the Bible says. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's take a look at this one. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? All. All. 
the testimony given at the proper time. Now, verse 4 says that God desires all men to be saved. Verse 6 says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, again, I'll tell you the, the other, the other side, the way they interpret this verse is that it means that, they say it means that he gave himself as a ransom for all kinds of men. All men without distinction, but not necessarily all without exception. They say that Jesus Christ in his death died for different kinds of people. There's not any kind of person out there that he did not die for. But they say it doesn't mean that he died for every person in the world. He died for the elect, who are all different kinds of people and from different tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. But again, same thing. We're going to have to read that into this text rather than just accept it for what it says. And so if I'm just to accept these verses for what they say in the natural plain meaning, I take away from it, there is a sense in which Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all people. He desires the salvation of all. Now, notice it says he desires the salvation of all. It doesn't say he has chosen the salvation of all, or he has predestined the salvation of all, or he has appointed the salvation of all, but he desires it. He sincerely desires it. But there are certain things that God desires that he doesn't go ahead and fulfill. Just like there are certain things that I desire that I don't go ahead and fulfill. I may want to eat a hot fudge sundae every night for the rest of my life, but I decide not to do that. You know? So I have certain desires I just don't fulfill. And God is the same way. God desires the salvation of all people, but he doesn't necessarily uh, covenant to make that happen. He doesn't stretch out his all-powerful arm to make that happen. So, Jesus Christ died for the world. The Bible also says that he died for all men in this passage. Let's take a look at another one. 1 Timothy 4.10 For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of who? All men. Especially, now this is interesting, especially of believers. So the all men cannot be the same group as the believers, right? So he can't be saying he's the, he's the savior of the elect, especially of the elect. He's saying the living God is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe on Christ. Now, I'll tell you the way that the other side understands this verse. They say this verse is simply saying that he is the Savior in terms of rescuing us out of danger or perils or he's the provider. God, God is, God is the one who is the Savior in terms of providence. Like if you are in need or if you are ill or if you are sick or if you're facing a tornado or a hurricane or something, God is the one who saves all men, especially believers. I, that just doesn't fit with me. That doesn't fit with me. First of all, because it says he's the living God who is the Savior. We just read back in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy that our God is the Savior, the living God. But then it says that he, he desires all men to be saved and he gave Christ a ransom for all. So it's not just talking about his providence. It's talking about eternal salvation that comes through the cross when it speaks about the living God who is the Savior of all men. But this is a very interesting verse because it does make a distinction between believers and all men. And then let's take a look at another one. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It's been brought to all men. Not all men receive it, and not all men have been appointed to it. But it is available to and provided for and offered to all all people. Now, not only did Jesus Christ die for the world and for all men, but he died even for those that perish. Let's look at 2 Peter 2.1. Okay. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now these, in the Old Testament, there were false prophets. He's saying under the New Covenant, there are false teachers. 
These false teachers are going to bring in heresies. That means false teaching. And that heresies are going, they're going to be destructive. And part of those heresies will be that they will even deny the master who bought them. Okay. I don't know what you think about this, but when I read the master who bought them, that's Jesus. And he bought them through his shed blood on the cross. Now, there's all kinds of ways that people try to squirm out from underneath that interpretation and say it means something else, but that just has a natural meaning to me. The word bought there, the Greek word is agorazo, and it's the same word in 1 Corinthians where it says we have been bought with a price, redeemed. It's the same word we read earlier in Revelation 5.9. Jesus purchased for God men out of every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. That's the word here. The master bought them, but what happens to these false teachers, according to this text? What do they bring on themselves? Swift destruction. Now, again, the natural interpretation of that passage would mean these people are false teachers, they bring in heresy, they even deny Jesus Christ, and they bring destruction upon themselves, which I understand to be eternal damnation or hell. They end up in hell. But Jesus bought them. He bought them, even though they end up being destroyed. That's a very, very strong text that shows the sufficiency of what Jesus did at the cross for all men everywhere throughout the world. So Christ died for the world. The Bible says he died for all men. The Bible says he died for those that perish. The death of Jesus Christ is sufficient for anybody. Out, no, no matter who you're talking to, what he did is sufficient for them. But there's another side of this that we need to look at. We need to look at the design of the atonement. Not just its sufficiency, but its design. And what I mean by that is, what did God intend to do through the death of his son? What was his design in sending Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible teaches that he died for the many. Isaiah 53, 11 says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, that's referring to Christ, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Now, who is Christ going to justify? According to this text, who's he going to justify? The many. Whose iniquities is he going to bear? The many. The many, whoever this group is, whoever the many is, they are a target. Jesus came into the world for this target to justify them and to bear their iniquities. Okay, let's go over to Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Implied is, not for all, there was a particular group amongst the all that he was especially targeting, especially going after when he came to that cross, and it was the many again. Also, let's look at Hebrews 9.28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. So yes, he died for the world, but here these verses tell us that he died especially for the many. doesn't tell us who they are, but they're a particular group within this, this world that he came for. Okay, not only did he die for the many, the Bible says he died for the church. Acts twenty twenty eight. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You see, this text isn't talking about every individual within the world. It's talking about the church, how they were an especial group that Christ came into the world on purpose to save, the church of God. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, her, the church, the, the target, <laughs> the target of the cross. 
So he died for the many. He died for the church. He also died for his people. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now the emphasis is not on the entire human race. It's on the people of God within the human race. And I believe all these texts, his people, the church, the many, they're all talking about the elect. They're all talking about God's chosen people. There is a special sense in which Christ died for them. And then, again, Christ died for his sheep, according to the Bible. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, my friends, is every person in the world a sheep of Christ? Verse 26 says, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. On Judgment Day, when Christ comes back, there's going to be two groups. Sheep, and what else? Goats. Got two groups of people. Elect, non-elect. Saved, lost. Sheep, goats. Does somebody become a sheep by believing, according to verse 26? No, they believe because they're a sheep. We get, it, we get that exactly backwards in our mind. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. Implied, if you were my sheep, you would believe. Verse 27, my sheep, they're the ones who hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So if you are one of God's sheep, you'll hear the voice of Jesus, you will follow Christ, He will give eternal life to you, and that eternal life will never perish. And those are the kinds of people that Jesus laid down his life for, according to verse 11. Are we together on that one? Okay. So that's the design. There is a specific design when God sent his son into the world. Yes, his death was a sufficient atonement for all people. But in addition to that sufficient atonement for all people, there was a special intention that he was sending him into the world to get a certain people. These are the people that he had chosen before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. When Christ came into the world, he came as a representative of these people. He lived his life for them. He died his death for them. He rose again for them. God gave them to him. And he took them upon himself as his charge and responsibility to save. And so they were especially upon his heart when he came into the world. Do you remember the high priest of Israel, how he would on his, he'd have a breast piece of judgment and he'd have these 12 stones over his heart? Christ comes into the world as the high priest and he has his people on his heart, his elector on his heart. He comes to get them. He comes to save them. All through the book of John... Jesus talks about the ones that the Father had given him. And those are the ones he came into the world to save. Now, let's talk about the mechanics of the atonement. The mechanics. What I mean by that is, how does the atoning work of Jesus Christ work? What's the process by which the cross actually works? The mechanics of it. How can both of those first two things be true at the same time? How can Jesus die for all people, and how can he especially die for certain people? Well, I think the answer is that he didn't die for all people in exactly the same way. He died for all people in one way, and he died for the elect in another way. Let me put it like this. Christ died for all men, especially for the elect. Did Jesus Christ die to make salvation possible for every person? Or did Jesus Christ die to make salvation certain for his elect? My answer is yes. <laughs> Both of those are true. He died to make salvation possible for all, but he died to make salvation certain for his chosen people. Now, how can that be? How can the same death of Jesus Christ do both of those things at the same time? Christ's death made it possible for all every person to be reconciled, redeemed, and his sins or the God's wrath to be averted. That's all true, but 
Just because Christ died to make salvation possible does not mean necessarily that any person is automatically going to be saved by that cross. What must happen in a person's life if they're going to receive the benefits of what Christ did at the cross? What's got to happen? Regeneration. Regeneration. Because we've learned under total inability that we're dead in sins. If I'm dead in sins... There's no way I can receive the benefits of the cross until I am united to Christ. When I am united to Christ, His life flows into me and I receive the supernatural life of Jesus Christ. That's what regeneration is. The life that's in Jesus comes to me because I'm joined to Him. I'm united to Him. As long as I'm outside of Christ, everything that He did on that cross does not profit me. I must be joined to Him. Okay, so here's the big question. When Jesus Christ died, did he purchase that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit for every person who will ever live, or did he purchase that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit for his elect? Be careful how you answer this. Because <laughs> if you say that he purchased regeneration for every person in the world, you've just emptied hell. There is no such thing as hell. Nobody goes there. Every person who's ever lived goes to heaven. Because they're all going to be regenerated. And remember, regeneration is not something that we accomplish. The Bible says, um, But God, because of His great mercy and His love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. This is Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. It says, When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive. Now, if I'm dead and somebody else makes me alive, how much of that did I have to do with? How much credit do I get? How much, how much did I add to that whole transaction? Zip. Nothing. So regeneration is not something that you and I contribute to. We're passive in regeneration. Now we're active in sanctification once we come alive. Very active in doing good deeds and all of that. But if you're dead, you're passive in this, this work where you become alive. It's, it's like when Jesus looked at Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus has, was stinking and rotting, four days dead. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth! Now, was Lazarus active in coming forth? Did he make himself come forth? Was there something of him that contributed to him coming forth? No! It was the powerful word of Jesus Christ that made him come forth. Okay, so that's how regeneration works. The big question is, when Christ purchased the gifts, go back to the cross. Every good gift that comes to people anywhere throughout the world must come through the, the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Well, that would include regeneration. So th in, this is how I understand the work of Jesus Christ for the elect to be different than his work on behalf of the rest of the world. He purchased for the elect the gift of the Holy Spirit where he would come into their lives, regenerate them, unite them to Christ so that the benefits of what happened at Calvary become theirs. Now this other group over here still have salvation offered to them. It's still available. If they would, the only thing that stops them is their own wicked heart. They don't want it. They'd rather die than embrace um, Jesus Christ, because there's an, an enmity towards God in the heart of every lost person. So it's not God's fault that they don't respond to it, because God offers it to them, it's available to them, it's their own heart that stops them from coming. But yet God does something a little bit more for this group over here. He makes them alive, so that they do come to Jesus Christ in faith. Let's look at a couple of texts that might help us with this. Let's go over to Romans 8, verse 32. Okay, let's take a look at this one. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. The greater is, God has given the greatest thing of all when he delivered over his own son to death. He gave him the greatest thing of all. Shouldn't we expect that if God goes to such great lengths to give over his own son to death, that he'll give everything else that we need to get to heaven? There's his argument. 
If he's given the greatest thing, surely you can count on him to give all these other things that you need. Well, one of the other things that you need to get to heaven is regeneration. You need to be born again. So if Christ delivered, or if God delivered Christ over to death, we can count on him also to give us this new life that comes when we're united to Christ so that we can actually make it to glory. But who is this promise given to here? Who is Jesus delivered over for? Us all. Who is the us all? <laughs> at first glance, you might think, well, that's easy. That's everybody who's ever lived. Well, not so, not so fast. Look at the context. Oleg, would you put up verse 20, uh, 29 and 30? Let's look at the context. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The us all of verse 32 are those who were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Then look at verse 30, uh, yeah, 31, Oleg. Can you put that up? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's the us? Remember what you just read. The us who have been predestined, foreknown, called, justified, and will be glorified. That's the us in mind here. And then look at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against who? God's elect. So when he says, when he says us all in verse 32, he means us all who are God's elect. That, that's the, that's the group he has in mind. So the promise of verse 32, and let's go back to verse 32, Oleg. This promise of verse 32 is a promise given to those who have been predestined, called, justified, and are going to be glorified, and they're identified in the very next verse as the elect of God. So here's, this is what I understand verse 32 to be teaching. God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered his son over for his people, the elect, he's also going to freely give them everything else they need to get to glory. One of those things being the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's look at Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Here's another text. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the text says that God saved us through regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. But how is this regeneration given to us? Verse 6 answers that. He poured out this Holy Spirit who brings regeneration. He, he poured out the Spirit richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So through the saving work of Christ on the cross, there was purchased for God's people this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit by which they can receive the benefits of the atonement. Okay? Let me read to you. Actually, you can read this. We're going to put up on the screen... Um, a statement from the canons of the Synod of Dort. Have you guys ever heard of that? The canons of the Synod of Dort? <laughs> this was a convention of Reformed theologians that were called together in Holland in 1618. And they were called together because there were two different doctrines flying around. And they were trying to, to hammer out a confession of faith that they believed was biblical. And this is what they came up with. For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of His Son should extend to all the elect for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those, and those only, who from eternity were chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. That he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them by his death, 
should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, and having faithfully preserved them even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. Basically, these people 400 years ago are saying the exact same thing I'm trying to tell you today. That's what they hammered out in their confession of faith when they tried to look at all of the biblical evidence for what happened at the cross. There is a, and I could show you other scriptures where they said the, the death of Jesus Christ is absolutely sufficient for all people of the world. But yet, in the death of Christ, he purchased the gracious saving influence of the Holy Spirit for his elect people. So what was going on when Jesus died at the cross? What was the process? What was the mechanics of the cross? Jesus was becoming liable to divine justice to satisfy the demands of the law against sin. That's what was happening at the cross. He was becoming liable to God's justice to satisfy God's law. Now, what does the law of God demand when a person sins? Death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So if Jesus is going to satisfy the divine demands of the law against sin, what does he have to do? He has to die. Now what if there's one sin, one sinner who needs salvation? What must Jesus do in order to save that person? He's got to die. <laughs> Here's my answering person right here. <laughs> he has to die. But what if there are two sinners needing salvation? Does Jesus have to die twice? Is one death sufficient for two people? Or does he have to die, be resurrected, die again, be resurrected, die again, be resurrected for all the people that... No. His one death, since he, he becomes a man, he can only die once. Right? But his one death is so valuable and precious because it's not just a man who's dying, it's God. It's the infinite creator who's dying on behalf of sinners. So that one death is so precious and so valuable that it can count for any number of people. It can count for 10 billion worlds of people if God wants it to because of the person who's dying on that cross. Because he's God, his death had infinite value and could atone for as many as God wanted. See, Jesus Christ came to die for sins. He came into the world to get his chosen people. But his chosen people had committed the very same sins that everybody else in the world had committed. So when Jesus Christ died for the sins of his chosen people, he also ends up dying for the same sins that non-elect people commit too. That's why the cross is sufficient for anybody. Because Christ, well, what are some of the sins that elect people commit? Adultery, murder, lying, homosexuality, thievery, right? But those very sins that elect people commit are the same sins that non-elect people throughout the world are committing too. So when Christ died to pay, satisfy divine justice for murder, okay, he satisfied it. So he has provided a sufficient atonement for the sin of murder. So that's why a non-elect person out there who has also committed murder has an atonement in the cross that can cover his sins if he would avail himself of that work. Think about the sun. The sun is a powerful, huge, burning star in the sky, isn't it? And it takes our sun to sustain the life of one single blade of grass, right? If the sun's gone, that blade of grass is going to die. Do you need 10,000 suns if you've got 10,000 blades of grass? Just one sun, and you, that one sun could sustain the life of millions and millions of different plants on planet Earth. That's how the cross works. It's one indivisible act. One, one act whereby God himself becomes man, lays down his life, atoning for sin. Christ in his death could do no less to save any, but he need do no more to save all. 
Okay, think about that. Christ in his death needed to do, he could do no less to save any, but he needed to do no more to save all. It's like, let's say you have a family that a wicked, bloodthirsty king takes prisoner, throws him into prison, and you want to try to get your family out of prison. So what do you do? You take some dynamite, you blow a hole through the wall of that prison. Now, when you blew a a, a hole through the wall of that prison, you did that because you were going to go in there and get your family out. But the same hole that you blew in the wall of that prison to get your family out is sufficient for anybody else in that prison to come out too. If they don't come out of that hole, it's their fault, not yours. (laughs) Now, you didn't blow the hole in the wall to get them. That wasn't your intention in blowing the wall, but it still makes it sufficient for them to get out. You see the point? (laughs) That's how the cross works. So is the death of Jesus Christ limited or unlimited? It depends on how you look at it. If you're looking at how many people could be saved by the death of Christ, it's unlimited. If you're looking at how many people God intended to save by it, it's limited. You have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ through two different lenses. How many could it save? It's sufficient for anybody. How many did God send him into the world to save? How many did he design Christ to save? Well, that's the elect. So you've got these two things happening at the same time. It's kind of like, let me, let me try to give you an illustration that might help. Let's say your family is on a cruise ship. The cruise ship goes down at sea. And you, you get word of this, that your family's floundering in the sea. They're all going to perish. They're all going to drown unless something happens fast. And so a man goes out there in a, in a great big old massive ship and he has a megaphone and he sees bodies bobbing all over the water and he says, anybody who wants to be saved, just raise your hand. And anybody who raises their hand, he goes over there and lifts them out of the water into a ship and he takes them to shore. Now in that analogy, the man who went out there in that massive ship, he had the capacity to save everybody that was drowning but he went out there with no specific intention to get anybody. You see that? It was just anybody that wanted to be saved, they could be. But he didn't go out with an intention to get anybody in particular. Now let's say, let's reverse things. You've got all these people drowning at sea, and a man finds out that his wife and four children are part of those people who are drowning. He gets a six-man motorboat. He gets in that motorboat. He goes out there. He passes by everybody else. He picks up his wife and his four kids and he speeds away to safety. That's the other view of the atonement, that Christ died for the elect alone. But see, that doesn't show any sufficiency to save anybody else because the boat could only handle six people. It was not able to take in anybody else other than six total passengers. So in the second analogy, that man with his little motorboat, it's not sufficient to save anybody other than his own family. In the first analogy, there's no specific intention or design. But let's try to see if we can come up with an analogy that will bring all of the Bible together. And this is what I've come up with. Let's say (laughs) the U.S. is at war with Cuba, just hypothetically speaking. And some Cubans have come over to the U.S. and they've taken some prisoners of war. And they happen to be members of your own family. You live in Texas, somehow they they got to the shores of Texas, they grabbed members of your family, and they're taking off back to Cuba. And now they're prisoners of war. But on their way back to Cuba, there's this great storm that capsizes this massive naval ship that the Cubans are in. And again, everybody's floundering, everyone's perishing at sea. Well, you hear about this, and you happen to be a captain in the United States Navy, so you get in one of those massive big naval ships, and you, you head out to try to... You're going out to get your family. But you're going in a boat that's so big that once you've hauled your family in, you get the megaphone out and you start yelling, anybody else out there who would like to be saved? We're here. But who else is out there? Cubans. The avowed enemies of the U.S. Navy. They would rather die than give in to being saved by their enemies. And so they all perish at sea rather than being saved. Now, the offer was sincere. It was a real sincere offer by the person with the megaphone. The, he, he had a vessel that was sufficient to haul all of them in, 
could have done. The fault lies in the person perishing. They would rather die than turn over their rescue to who they perceive to be an enemy. And the Bible says that lost people are the enemies of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that when we were enemies of God, he reconciled us through the death of his son. So that's, that's how I understand how the atonement works. It's like that third illustration of this massive boat. The man's going out to get his family, and he's going to get them. He goes on purpose to get them. But then he goes and he offers salvation to anybody else as well. And if man perishes, it's not because there was not an atonement sufficient for him. He can never blame God and say, there wasn't enough in the cross to save me, and that's why I'm in hell. It'll never work, because there is a sufficient atonement made for him. He's going to have to look back at his own self and say, time after time after time, I rejected the work of Jesus Christ. I went my own way. I would not bow to Christ. I would not put my trust in him. I would not repent of sin. I would not embrace the cross of my Lord. I have to accept responsibility for my own eternal destruction. So what does this all mean for you? If you are a Christian, what this means is that God, when he sent Jesus in the world, sent Jesus to get you, specifically. It's not like Christ was going for a nameless blob of humanity out there with nobody specifically in mind, hoping upon hope that somebody out there might take him up on his offer. That's not the way it worked. God sent the Son into the world to get his people. It just so happens that the death of his Son was so powerful that it's sufficient for anybody if they would avail themselves of it. So if you are a Christian, you need to, you need to think about it. When Jesus went to that cross, he had me personally in mind when he was dying. Like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself up for me. It wasn't just that he gave himself up for humanity. He gave himself up for me specifically and personally. Think about that. That Christ had you in mind, that he loved you personally enough to leave heaven, come down to earth, and to get you and to bring you back to glory. And if he loved you that much, then we ought to love him in return. And that we ought to follow Christ wherever he leads us and surrender our lives to him. Because he is worthy of our love, he's worthy of our devotion. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of the cross of his son. Lord, we do praise and thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your cross. Thank you, Lord, that it was intentional and designed to come and get the church and the many and the bride and the sheep and the people. And it's also powerful enough to save the world. All men, even those that perish, there's a sufficiency in it, Lord. It baffles our mind to consider all that the Bible says about the cross of our Lord. And Lord, I know that this has been kind of a difficult message because it, it stretches our thinking. It, it's a theological issue that is hard to grapple with. I pray that you'd help us to learn to take away from it those things that will make Christ even more precious to us. In his holy name, amen.